Father, we're thankful for your word, uh, for your communication to us, for our neighbors, for the people you've placed in our path to love. We pray that you would uh, give us the wisdom and strength to love strong and love well. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we come to nearly the end of the Jonah series. We actually have a couple more sermons left, uh, one of which I'm going to do the prodigal son and compare it to the prodigal prophet. And then the other, Pastor David, is going to sort of tie it back and bring it home and say, how does this fit within Midland Free Mission and stuff like that. So we got a couple more goes. Next Sunday is uh, Senior Recognition Sunday. So we'll get a message from Pastor Jeff and see all the grads and learn about them. And that'll be really cool. And then we'll wrap it up and go into our summer routine after that, which is not to stay at home and stay in bed, but to continue to worship just in a different way. And so uh, we are moving along well with the Lord's will in that. Today, uh, we look at Jonah chapter 4. If you're just joining us, you're really late in the series, but that's okay. You can watch online, and I'd certainly recommend doing so because a lot of the stuff I'm going to pull back in is tied to previous uh, communications or sermons. But uh, today is certainly no exception. But just to refresh your memory, what we've basically done is said, if you imagine this book like a production or a play, like you go to the Midland Center for the Performing Arts, or you go to Dow High or Midland High or any of the other local high schools, and you walk in and the curtain rolls back, what do you see? Scene one, you see the prophet fleeing. You see him running through the woods, the branches coming across his face, the dark, scary scene, and then you see him falling asleep in the bottom of the ship. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? Scene two, all of a sudden you hear a big storm and everybody's afraid and someone's yelling and screaming and saying, get up, get up, get up. And there's all this chaos and they're trying to figure out what's going on and they're throwing stuff overboard and eventually they're like, okay, you're next. <laughs> and they're about to throw the prophet overboard. And then scene three comes to the prophet coming to again. He's on the shore, he's waking up, he's you know, dusting himself off and saying, okay, what do I do, what do I do? And he begins to move forward with God's original plan for his life. And he goes to Nineveh. And scene four is really what we find today is him walking around in Nineveh and doing what God told him to do. And the question then becomes is, well, what's going to happen? How's this thing going to close? It's going to close somehow. What's going to happen? So today we're in scene four, which is actually chapter four. And the question is sort of what happened in Nineveh? So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 4. It's the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, we have blue ones in the back you can borrow. We're also going to put the words up on the screen because the text is important. And we want you to be able to follow along with the Word of God. So either way you do it, it's good with us. Just get in the Word and enjoy. Jonah chapter 4. I'm actually going to start in verse 10 of chapter 3 just because that sort of wraps things up. Jonah 3.10 says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew you're a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life, 
for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord said to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be hangry? Jonah went out in the city and sat down, out of the city and sat down to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. A little bit like the, perhaps like the soccer or softball games, you know, they got the little booth and they're sitting under it watching the game. He sat under the shade till he could see what would become of the city. And the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, the Lord also appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said again, It is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not even labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't even know their left hand from their right and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The theme for today is this, is that uh, God wants our hearts to align with his. God wants our hearts to align with his, and even better, he's willing to help. In fact, he's willing to go to great lengths to help us get there. So the way we'll look at this playing out in the following passage is in these two steps. Number one, well, you're kind of probably, if you're like me, you're asking, well, how does one align their heart? You know, I mean, your heart, it's kind of like this intangible, internal, what are you talking about? Mind, soul, body, spirit, what do you mean align your heart? I can align my steps, but my heart? Here's what I mean. Uh, In two ways, we need to align our hearts. Number one, we need to align our pleasures what it is that we enjoy and what it is that pleases us. And number two, we need to align our thoughts. How do our thoughts conform to the perfect revealed will of God, i.e. his word? Align our pleasures and align our thoughts. How do we align our hearts just like this? So let's start with perhaps the first question that comes to your mind as it did to uh, many I discussed it with this week, and that is this. Where is the happy ending? As we read this book, and we've been working our way through it, if we're Western literature connoisseurs, or even if we go to the movies, we really prefer the fairy tale. You know, the sunset, the romance, the knight riding off into the countryside, taking away his beautiful bride, and everyone lived? Amen. There we go. That's what we're after, right? The beautiful fairy tale ending. And yet, when we read the book of Jonah, what do we come to? The stinky, grumpy, upset prophet sitting on the side of a hill waiting for the city to be destroyed and God saying, what's wrong with you, man? (laughs) That's not what I was after. I was hoping that, you know, I was waiting for the night to come riding in on the brilliant white horse and save us all. Where is that? 
Where is that, church? Revelation 21. Right? This is Jonah 4. We're not there yet. The best is yet to come, but we haven't quite got there. And meanwhile, in this process, God is giving you a chance to repent. He's not slow about his promises like you think of slow. But he said he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repent. This is your chance. Do you really want the night to come riding back right now? Are all of your friends and loved ones saved? Do your neighbors know Christ? Jonah wanted that judgment to happen right away. What did God think of that? Not cool, Jonah. Not cool. The night is still coming. The fairy tale ending needs yet to be, but it is not now. Now we wait. Jonah chapter 4. So, how then does this chapter work? In fact, it ends in a rather ironic word. What is the last word in this chapter? What is it? Cattle. Amen. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) Yay for the beef industry. (laughs) Go farmers. People in Nebraska would love this sermon. (laughs) Why cattle? Why in the world does this book end on the cattle note? That makes no sense at all. Well, I think the way you figure that out is the same way you figure out all the questions in the Bible. Indeed, we don't know all the answers, but the simplest way to do so is to ask ourselves basically three questions, and that's the three questions you want to ask anytime you read a good book. And since this happens to be the good book, we should ask those same questions. So number one, what's the point of the book? You know, the author wrote it with a certain end in mind. He has an, an a desirable thing that he wants to communicate. My wife says to me, go to the store and get a dozen eggs and a gallon of milk. If I interpret that in my own way and I come back with ice cream and soda pop, I'm like, well, it's dairy and drinkable, you know? That's not what she was getting at. You, know, you need to ask, what is the intent of the person who communicated this? That's what matters. Not how did you interpret it. Not what did it mean to you. That's an arbitrary, subjective, blah, 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 means nothing hermeneutic. What you want to ask is, what did the author mean to say? So why would God include cattle as part of the ending to this story? Well, what is the point of the book? Remember, what is he trying to say? I think it's summed up well in the same sermon series we did a couple weeks ago on Mother's Day, in Jonah 2, where we looked at the two words, Yahweh appointed. Yahweh appointed. Now, in those two words, I tried to convey to you two very significant concepts. And number one, that is in the appointing, it is God's sovereignty or control over the all things. I don't want to even say the universe, because there's stuff beyond that that I don't understand. God's control over all things. God appoints. You see that in this chapter with appointing the wind and appointing the plant and appointing this and appointing that. God appoints. So we see his sovereignty. But we also said if God is only sovereign, then, you know, it's not so good for us. Because he could snuff us out or he could not, just depending on his whim. 
But what we in fact see is not only is God sovereign, but he's also good. He is loving. He's kind. He's faithful. He is true. He is Yahweh. Yahweh appointed. Not just some random deity like the pagan Canaanites or the pagan Philistines or the pagan sailors or the pagan Assyrians ascribed to whatever natural force they see around them, but instead a specific person who rules over all things. That God, the great I Am, goes by the covenant name Yahweh. He's the faithful, covenant-keeping God from generation to generation who never changes at all. That's Yahweh. Who is this? Perhaps there's a God like this. I don't know. What's going to happen? Yahweh. Yahweh. God always gets the last word. God always gets the last word. That's an encouraging thought. It's a strengthening thought. It's a challenging thought. It's a scary thought for those who oppose him. God gets the last word. We teach our children to pray before lunch. God is good and God is great. God is good, God is great. That's all you want your kids to know. Ha ha, cute little children prayer. No. Can you say that in the face of cancer? God is good, God is great. Can you say that in the face of job loss? God is good, God is great. Can you say that when your husband or wife abandons you? God is good and God is great. Can you say that when your child dies? God is good. God is great. Oh, if you can get beyond that two or three-year-old prayer, you can live the rest of your life successfully forever in eternity. God is good and God is great. Yahweh, covenant-keeping, faithful, good God, appoints great. The point of the book is that God is good and God is great. The God, the amazing God of grace. Not just amazing grace, but amazing God and grace that follows. Because he is amazing, his grace is too. The amazing God of amazing grace. Yahweh appoints. So we come to that point, we come to this point of God being good, God being great, God being in control, and we look at chapter 4, and it tells us even more. In verse 2 it says, He is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. This is what he is like. So the author has told you, I want to make this point. Now I'm going to supplement that. I'm going to add to it so that everything I write is going to contribute to that point. So when you come to a part of the text that you don't understand, you ask the question, how does this contribute to the main point? Here's an additional detail that the author felt important for me to grasp. How does that supplement or add to what it is he's already said? So how does, so let me ask you now, how does cattle, God sparing the cattle, supplement the fact that God is sovereign, God is good, God is great, he's a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? How does the sparing of cattle contribute to that? God's so good, he even cares about the silly cows, you know? As far as I can tell, if I was going to judge a city, cow schmals. I mean, I know it 
impacts their livelihood and yada yada. But at the end of the day, it's an ugly creature. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. It's not a beautiful whatever. It's a cow. No offense, cattle farmers. It's just a cow. I could eat it, take it or leave it, whatever. But God cares about every single aspect of his creation, to the hairs on your head, to the birds on the feather, to the cows in the field. He truly owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's his. He made it. And that's what differentiates him from all these silly other gods. They don't own the cattle. God does. It's his. And if it's his, then he cares about everything. And there is nothing that escapes his sight, even that silly little cow right over there. God cares. God is good. And God is great. Even down to the cattle. And if he cares about the cattle, what does that mean for you? God cares. So here is your ending in the book of Jonah. It leaves us with spared cattle and spared people, but one upset prophet. Indeed, in the original language, it says that Jonah was hot. He was burning up. He was red under the color up to here. <laughs> he was so mad, he wanted to die. Yes, to die. He was on the verge of asking God, no, he asked God to take his life. He was angry. Three times, verse 9, verse 3, verse 8, he says, I am angry enough to die. Jonah is not in a good place. And we're sitting here quietly looking at one another and looking at me, but I'm guessing it's highly possible. In fact, I don't even think I'm guessing. There's some of you, perhaps even this morning, that are in the same spot. You might just be angry enough to die. You are so mad at God for what he has allowed into your life that you are about ready to give up. I've been there. Jonah's been there. In fact, I will say it from the pulpit, and I know we're recording this, and I'm going to dance around it as clean carefully as I can, but suicide is a real deal. It's an actual temptation that people face. Just like grabbing that cookie in the cookie jar, just like cheating on your wife, just like saying a bad word or looking at something you shouldn't, suicide is something that's real and people deal with it. Here it is in Jonah chapter 4, and Jonah hasn't gone so far as to take his own life, but he's asking God to end it for him. Why? Why is Jonah so upset? Well, I think... I'm skipping ahead in my outline a little bit, and I'll come back. I think what's happening to Jonah is the same thing that really upsets us, and that is what is perceived to be as injustice. We see something that we don't like, and we say, God, that's not fair. I don't like it. What you did was wrong. That's not fair. I mean, come on, be honest, right? We've all felt that way. We've listened to our children when they're like, eh got this i didn't no 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 <laughs> you know and you say oh those kids they're so immature and then what do we do <laughs> we look around and we say ah they got this i didn't i don't like it no 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 same thing the hallmark of immaturity is complaining 
about something being unfair. Why? Because God is sovereign, God is good, God appoints. And you don't like what he did. And you're complaining about it. And so here's Jonah, and I mean, look, I mean, we justify our own stuff in a lot of ways, but Jonah, man, he's got real reasons to get upset. If you think about the Ninevites and all the stuff I've told you about them and shown you the pictures and the stuff they brag about, he's right. They deserve to be judged. They deserve to be obliterated from the face of the earth. For what they've done, God should destroy them. And he does a little bit later. But at this point in time, Jonah's looking at it and saying, God, you're not doing your job. <laughs> you're supposed to be good and you're supposed to be great and you're letting them get away with it. That's not good and that ain't great. And I am hacked. God, where are you, Mr. Sovereign? Where are you, Mr. Good? How can you let that evil, sinful person get away with that? Have you ever said that? God, where are you? You're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be great. How can you let that evil, sinful person get away with that? Same spot. You're accusing God of injustice, but the reality is what we're so bothered by is the scandal of grace. You see, we want grace for ourselves, but justice for everyone else. <laughs> but that's the scandal, is God gives it to people who don't deserve it. And in his incredible mercy and in his incredible power, he has provided a way through his son to be both just and justifier, to both punish and forgive at the same time. That's the nature of the cross. But Jonah doesn't have that yet, and he's sitting here scratching his head going, Lord, um, these are the people that want to kill the Jews, take the land, and turn it into a toll booth. God, these are the people who have carried off our women and children. God, these are the people who have surrounded our cities and laid siege and hung up our friends on poles. God, these are the people that deserve to die, and you prophesied that anyone who comes against us, you'll oppose. <laughs> Where is it, God? I don't get it. That is not fair. So in this sense, I'm saying to you that I think Jonah is, I can understand his complaint. I get it. Like, I'm not mad at him at this point. I'm not saying he's right, but I understand how you could be upset about something like that. Moreover, Jonah looks at this, and he sees not only the scandal of grace, but he's also losing several other things. For example, he loses the plant. Now, we attach a lot of emotional significance to stuff in our lives. I know I'll talk to my children sometimes, and if you go to McDonald's, they give you this little 10-cent plastic toy, right? And, oh, it's so exciting. You've got this, you know, airplane that's got a spinner on it, and you know what's going to happen to that, right? What's going to happen to that plane? It's going to break, absolutely, in about 10 minutes. It's going to break. And I, I guess it's just my own fallen human nature and a little bit of God's grace, but I see those things and I just scratch my head and say, oh, I hate those things. <laughs> I hate them because it's this little piece of plastic that's going to create conflict in our home. Someone's going to get upset and it just, yeah, there's a little smile at the beginning, but at the end of the day, it's all going to go boom. And sometimes my kids don't get it and I surely say it wrong, but I'm like, you know what? I don't care about that stupid piece of plastic. I'm going to stomp on it and throw it away, <laughs> you know? This is not worth fighting over. Why? 
Because it's plastic, right? It's 10 cents. McDonald's still made a profit on a $3.99 Happy Meal and gave that to you. How much do you think that's worth? It? <laughs> it's junk. And I think the Lord God looks at our life and he sees all this stuff we have, whether they're campers or boats or houses or cottages or clothes or rings or whatever. He says, are you kidding me? You think that fishing pole or that shotgun or that whatever is so valuable? That stupid piece of junk. If that causes any stress or pressure or relational issue in your life, I'm going to smash it. I could care less. That plastic is going to wear out in what? thousand years? 10,000 years? Who cares? <laughs> it's no big deal. That thing is so small compared to him. Here's Jonah in this passage, and boy, he's got his plant. He's got it made in the shade. <laughs> yeah. Made in the shade. He's sitting back. His job is done. He's retired. He got the package that he always dreamed of early. He made this. Wait a minute. How far did he go? How far did he go? 500 miles, that's exactly right, good. He made this 500-mile trek, but his heart was a little different than the proclaimers. He wasn't doing it out of love. He wanted to see them get blasted. And he goes to great lengths, and he does his job, and he thinks, all right, good, I'm done. <laughs> I made it to Nineveh. I proclaimed the word of the Lord. It's time to, for me to sit back and relax. I put in my time. Don't even talk to me about being in the belly of the fish, <laughs> I don't want to hear about that. I have put in my time. It is sabbatical orama for the next 60 years. I'm sitting back. I've got it made in the shade. I've got everything in order. I'm going camping on the beach. Here's my tent. Boop. Good. Little cup. Pineapple. Ready to go. Done. I'm a happy camper. And that nice little umbrella that shade is sitting there and the lord god's looking down at him going oh man this is so not what it's about <laughs> jonah get rid of that stupid plant get up man what are you doing oh you took away my plant it's not fair now at this point if i'm god i'm like <laughs> jonah but God is so patient. He's so gracious. He's so kind. You don't hear him screaming at Jonah. You don't see him raining down fire on Jonah. You don't see him reminding him, hey, Jonah, by the way, you remember the whole fish thing? You remember the whole storm thing? You remember those other guys I swallowed up in the ground when they did things I didn't like? Jonah, are you sure you want to argue about this plant? I'm pretty sure I'm the guy who made it, and I'm pretty sure I'm the guy who made, grew it, and I'm pretty sure it's not yours in the first place. Hey, church, you think you own that house? I'm pretty sure he's the guy that gave it to you. I'm pretty sure he's the guy that grew the trees, and I'm pretty sure he gave it to you in the first place. <laughs> it's not yours. And here's Jonah getting all mad about it, and God is so gracious. He gently asks him a question. He doesn't even tell him what's wrong. He's just like, Jonah, come here. I got a question for you. Yeah, God, what is it? Is it right for you to be angry about that plant? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's right, man. It is right, all right. Yeah, let me tell you. 
I like that plant. It's special. <laughs> uh, Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry about that plant? Shouldn't I be a little bit more concerned about this city of 120,000 people? Jonah, what's up, man? Look at your heart. Is it anywhere close to mine? Because right now, all I see is that you want to kill people and preserve a plant. Meanwhile, I don't care about the plant, and I want to preserve the people. How do our desires, how do our hearts align on this? Because as far as I can tell, we're nowhere close. What's going on, Jonah? What is going on inside of you? As far as I can tell, it is not in cahoots with me. Jonah, what's wrong, man? Isn't God good? Aren't you glad He treats us like that? I'm so glad that God is like that. He's come to me like that so many times I can't even tell you. Jeremy, are you really that mad about that? Yes, Lord, I'm mad. I'm angry enough to die. Jeremy, are you sure? Well, yeah, because this and this and this and that. Okay. Let me take a moment to pause here and say, also, I know I'm sort of joking and also sort of telling the truth about Jonah, but the reality is there are things in our lives that are really seemingly that bad, right? That we actually want to die. And I'm going back to that slide I was talking about earlier. Um, so I want to be open as we continue to go through this and we talk about that feeling or desire at some point that you may experience. You may be young, you may be old, but there is a, a real issue that humanity struggles with and that is the reason for life and whether or not it's worth going on. And if you've been around for very long, you've probably encountered this at some point, depending on the severity of your experiences, and perhaps even been tempted to take your own life. Now, it'd be easy for a, a preacher to say, okay, that's bad, don't do that. But that's not really a solution. And so let me give you a little help in that, and the help is this. Um, first of all, I think you should think of it, uh, let me just sort of take some of the mystique away. Um, I guess historically people have thought of suicide as sort of the uh, unpardonable sin, if you will. There's a couple of spots in the Old Testament that speak very strongly against it, and for obvious reasons, but the reality is it is a temptation I think that we face, that people encounter when your thoughts escape you and you allow them to run free, you come to a point where you're not in a good spot, just like Jonah, and you're like, I'm so angry, I just want to be done. I mean, I do not want to go on. And the way I'm hoping to help is to say this. There, in the New Testament, in Galatians 6.2, it says, bear one another's burdens. And what I get from that, many things, but one of which is this. There are some weights that are too heavy for us to carry as individuals. They're just too heavy. If you go to Home Depot and you rent a certain machine, it may say on the back of it, two-man lift. And what that means is that booger is so heavy, if you try to get it out of the back of your trunk on your own, you're going to hurt yourself. Don't even think about it. And you can try to be Mr. Manly and pull it out like this, but you're going to you know, pop something, tear something, or drop it on your foot. It's not going to work. You need to go over to your neighbor and say, hey, I'm sorry to bother you. I'd love to help you next chance I get, but can you just please help me get this out of my trunk? Because, I mean, I can't do it. 
I'm not strong enough to carry that weight myself. It's too heavy. There's no shame in that, right? I mean, we've got to do this. There's no, there's no way we can lift it on our own. So you go over and you say, hey, you want to help me? Oh, yeah, sure. And then next time that guy has something, you're like, sure, I'd be glad to help you. That's called Midland neighboring. Well, in the same way that you do that with a heavy piece of machinery, so too may you have to do that with a heavy issue in your life. You may have to say, oof, this is too heavy for me to lift on my own. It is breaking my back. I can't carry this weight. I need help. And there's no shame in that. And you need to get to that point where you can overcome your pride and say, yeah, I need help. Otherwise, you will get hurt and you'll hurt yourself. So let me give you a couple of tips for that. Number one, obviously, if you have a close, trusted Christian family member, that's a great place to start. And I'm talking trust. If you grab someone like, that's not strong enough to carry the load, you're going to hurt them and hurt you. If I ask my kids, hey, can you help me get this lift out of the back of my vehicle, they're going to get hurt because they're not big enough, mature enough, or strong enough to carry that. I don't ask them. You find the right person who's strong enough, who's trustworthy, Christian, and godly, and you go to them. It's not something you blab about on Facebook. It's something you talked about to a trusted Christian person. So you go to them and you say, hey, I've got this issue. I can't carry it on myself. Will you please help? And if, they're not, if it's not a family member, then a close Christian friend or someone in your community at church. And there are other options as well. Let me put this slide up there for you. Depending on where you're at in the process, I would say if you're immediately a threat, if you're really close, you just call 911. And that's not scary either. No one knows why the ambulance is coming to your house. You just go off in the ambulance, let them take care of you. I've actually driven someone to the emergency room myself before, and they're like, hey, I'm having you know, harmful thoughts. Can you help? Yep, let's go. Off we go to the emergency room. Because then you begin to process it, and you get help. So danger, danger, 911. That's simple. If you're not quite that far along and you just want to talk to somebody, we have a telephone number here at church. You can call us. We'll get somebody to be able to chat with you at some point. We also, there's also a, a crisis hotline here that you can see and some chat stuff if you like to do it on your phone. There's all kinds of people to help you carry this weight. Don't try to carry it yourself. That leads to a dead end, literally. So this slide, if you're afraid to write it down right now, you can download it later, and we won't even know who comes to our website. All we know is that the sermon was visited and something was downloaded. You can get it. You can give it to a friend, whatever. This is yours. These are your first steps, okay? So don't try to carry something you can't carry on your own. Jonah's experiences are real. The Bible records them on purpose, and so are yours. If you're struggling, if you're in that spot, reach out, ask somebody else, hey, can you help? This is a little bit heavy. I can't handle it myself. That's okay. We got to do that. So Jonah is upset because, number one, of the scandal of grace and number two, he's lost his shade. All of a sudden, everything that was comfortable and familiar is taken away. And indeed, that is usually our first response. When someone moves our cheese, when that which we are comfortable with and used to and happy with all of a sudden is obliterated, we're like, what's going on? This was really working for me, and now it's not. I'm upset. The thing about Jonah, though, is listen, he doesn't have the donut shop, the barber shop, the salon, 
the grain elevator, the clubhouse, or the fraternal society. He's got nowhere else to go. He's 500 miles from home. All his friends and family are a long ways away, and there's no calling card, collect, or anything else. He's all by himself. What is he going to do? Maybe God is just mean, right? No. God is what? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Why do you think God took Jonah 500 miles away from all his family and friends? For Jonah. He's helping Jonah. Now Jonah can't go back to the good old boys club and say, look what God did. Blah, 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 blah. And then the good old boys will say, yeah, you know it. You got a right to be angry about that. Boy, if any God treated me that way, I'd feel the same way you do. And Jonah walks away mad and upset, but feeling justified in himself because these are people within his culture, within his context, with his way of thinking that agree with everything he says. Of course, you're right, Jonah. And Jonah's spirituality is in the exact same spot. But God has ripped him out of his comfort zone, put him in a very unnatural spot, taken away all his comforts and given him no place else to turn. God is gracious. That's exactly what Jonah needed. So Jonah can't turn around to his best friend or whoever and say, hey, don't you think? No, 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 he's only got one way to go. It's up. Nowhere else to turn. God, what do I do? Jonah, Jonah, hear the voice of the Lord that you've ignored for so long. You've ran as far as you could. I chased you down with a storm. I chased you down with a whale. I brought you here. I gave you a plant to help you out for a little bit, but now I'm taking it away. Why? So I want you looking at me. Look at me, Jonah. In the eyes. I'm talking. Jonah, what's wrong, man? What's going on inside of you? How's your heart? Is it right for you to be angry about this? Come on, Jonah. Lord is gracious and kind, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. What an incredible God we serve. Socially isolated, Jonah is now in the greenhouse of God's love. Even though things are weird around him, he is just in the spot where God is designed for him to grow. And here is God going to great lengths to align Jonah's heart with his. All this stuff that Jonah could interpret as horrible things, God is doing for good. I think there's a very clear application for us in that. Here we are with our hearts fixed on something. Your heart is fixed on something, you know it is. And we assume it's God because we come on Sunday morning and we think this and we think that and all our friends around us who look like we do and talk like we do agree. But we go somewhere and God takes something away and all of a sudden we're upset. It tells us very quickly where our hearts are actually at. Here's a test for you, church. This is something that uh, Dr. Hickman pointed out a couple weeks ago to uh, the Walt team. And it's, it's really beautiful. I have to quote it here. It's from D.A. Carson. It says this, Here then is the practical test as to whether the thing I pursue is really for the glory and praise of God or for my own self. We already know what it was for Jonah. Let's check us. If the things I value are taken away, is my joy in the Lord undiminished? Or 
Am I so tied to my dreams that the destruction of my dreams means that I am destroyed as well? Do your hearts align with his? What do you value more? What pleases you? Does what please you please God? Well, what pleases God? Well, I think I can tell you, the scripture is pretty clear about that. 1 Timothy 2 says this, First of all, I urge prayers and supplications, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. That would be the sailors, the Ninevites, the Jonahs, the bosses at work, the family members, the kids, the neighbors, for kings, even those we disagree with who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. That's what's good. And that is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. In other words, when people repent, God relents. God delights in repentance. He enjoys that. He really likes it. He's excited about it. And he wants our hearts to be the same way. So let me ask you a couple questions. What is more pleasing to you? Going to Disney World? Or seeing someone come to faith? Which one's more exciting? Disney World's fun, right? It's the perfect kingdom. Everybody's smiling. I can get the fast passes and skip the line. <laughs> yes. But what is more exciting? Going to Disney World or somebody coming to faith? What if both cost about eight to $10,000? Where would you spend it? What is more exciting? The new camper or someone coming to faith? What is more exciting? Paying off your home? Let me tell you, that's a temptation. I want to pay off my home. I've only got like 28 years to go, you know? I'm excited. <laughs> I think I'm about 10 years out from paying the interest. I would love to have that burden released from my back. I hate it. But what would truly be, I mean, if that home got paid off, you know how excited I would be? But what if my neighbor came to faith? Would I be the same degree of excited for my home and my neighbor who came to faith? Where is my heart? What is it aligned with? What about my child? They could get a full ride to college or perhaps I could get that cottage on the lake. I don't know. Those would be pretty cool. What is more exciting? There's so many things we could go through and I hope you'll take a moment sometime just to say, hey, self, what are you thinking about? Just look at your thoughts. Your thoughts will tell you Im immediately what you're excited about. And here's the deal. I told you I'd give you a little help with this later. Here's the help. Um, when I was growing up, and, you know, we all have our stories, but this is one I know. Um, we had a dog named George, right? And I don't know what's kosher or germane or whatever for animal training nowadays, so if I offend somebody, I'm sorry, but back then they had choker chains, okay? So you know these chains that are kind of, they 
like a slip knot and they tighten up a little bit. So when you're with a little German shepherd, puppy, and you're teaching him to walk, the only way I knew how to do it at the time is give it a little, you know, yank on the chain. I'm going right, he's going left, I pay attention, puppy, boop, you know. And then you practice in the driveway and you run around until before long he's looking up at you and you stop and he stops and you come to the curb and he sits his bottom down and you throw out a piece of meat and he doesn't go after it. That's what happens when your dog's on a leash and he knows what to do. However, if you're one of those owners that are just like, you know what, I love my dog, whatever, you know, I'm not going to jerk that chain, no way. What does that dog do? (laughs) He pulls you all over the place. You should see him and my mom go for a walk. (laughs) She's running down the street. (laughs) Totally different story when that dog's with me. Totally different. Because he knows. It's coming. Your thoughts are on a leash, church. Whether you realize it or not, Those things belong to you. And the Bible says, hey, you train your mind, you discipline your thoughts, and when they start to run away, you jerk them back. Say, whoa, that's not true. The Bible says this, Satan, that is a lie, and I refuse to believe it. Thoughts, you get back over here. Come back into line. It is wrong for you to run away, and I will not let you control my life. In fact, the way the Bible says it is this, in 2 Corinthians 10, it says, basically, take every thought captive to Christ. We own this thing. Our thoughts should belong to God, and we can't let them run away. If you do, you end up like Jonah, and you follow that snowball down the path of negativity, and it's not too long, and you're on your way to death. That's exactly where Satan wants you to go. He wants to ruin your life, and he's going to feed you all the negativity he can all day long. And when you start believing that junk, you're going down. Just like Jonah. You're going down, down, down. may not be down to the whale, down to the ship, down to the sea, but it's going down. You've got to grab those thoughts and take them captive and bring them back in so that, as Philippians tells us, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are just honorable, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, you think about these things. God wants our hearts to align with his. He's willing to go incredible lengths to make that happen. We can look at the book of Jonah and we can see God chasing this prophet down and we can look at my life and we can look at yours and you can probably point to specific moments where you say, yeah, God chased me down right there. I was heading in the wrong direction fast, and he stopped me. And just because he did it once doesn't mean we're done. we got a long way to go. And the whole way through, you need to keep your thoughts and your heart and your mind focused on him so that nothing gets away. It's your leash. You hold it. You direct it. And by the power of the Spirit and the grace of the God, he will get you where he wants you to go. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this? Man, where's your heart? Church, where's your heart? You've seen the book. You know God is good. God is great. Yahweh appoints. At the end of the day, the question is, where's your heart? What do you pity? The plant, the house, the whatever. Shouldn't you care about something else? Where is the happy... ending where is the fairy tale where is the forever it's not until revelation 21 but even here even in jonah 4 
God gets the last word. Who is the last speaker in this text? Jonah? Nineveh? Sailors? Whale? (laughs) Is it Jonah and the whale? I don't think so. God always gets the last word in every story. In Jonah's story, in the sailor's story, in the Ninevite story, in your story, and in mine. God gets the last word. He is the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the land and the sea and the dry land. A gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Job 40, 3-5. Job answered and said to the Lord, Behold, I'm of a small account. I've spoken once and twice, but I will proceed no further. What shall I answer you? I will not. I lay my hand on my mouth. Father, we thank you that you always get the last word. You're good and kind and your mercies endure forever. You do all things well. Help us to make no mistake and know that you make no mistakes. Help us to believe as we teach our children that you are truly great and that you are truly good. God, help us to submit to all things according to your purpose, according to your plan, by your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.